so it's, it's uh, 1930s in Poland, and there's a simple, uh, a simple Jew, a, a villager, on a train from uh, a train going to the big city, and he's sitting on the train. He's reading his Chomish with with Ivritaych, you know, the Yiddish translated Chomish, and. Um, He's getting excited, and he's saying, Meiridik, Gvaldik. And there's a more assimilated Jew who's sitting across the aisle from him, and he's getting really, really embarrassed. So, and this, this young man, he's from the big city, and he's on his way back to the university, and he turns to the, the simple Jew, and he says, what, What's Meiridik? What's Gvaldik? What, what are you screaming about? And he says, Well, I'm reading here, in the Chumash, about how um, God split the sea and the uh, Jewish people were able to march right through the sea on dry land. That's Moedidik, Gvaldik. So the more modernized Jew, he says, my friend, can I, can I share something with you? Do you realize that... Um, Today, we have research that shows that at that time of year, in that location in the world, the so-called Red Sea would have been like a marsh. It would basically be like a swamp. It would be no more than about 10 inches of standing water. That's what they marched through. So, not exactly as impressive as you may uh, have thought it to be. So the simple Jew, he's a simple Jew, he doesn't argue, he says, oh, okay, fine. And he goes back to reading his Chumash. And a minute later, Meiridik, Gavaldik! And the more modernized Jew, he looks over, he says, I thought I already explained to you, what's Meiridik, what's Gavaldik? He says, no, 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 no. But now I got to the part where God drowns the entire Egyptian army in 10 inches of water. Okay, so, <clears throat> speaking of Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, the miracles of the splitting of the sea. I'm going to read to you here what it says, just uh, one Pasuk. It says, sorry, it starts on the previous page. Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand there. And see. The salvations of the Lord that he is doing for you today. Because if you see Mitzrayim today, you will not again see them forever. You will not again see them forever. So, um, some commentaries, including the Ramban, drawing upon the Mechelta, 
explained that that verse means that Moshe was actually stating a prohibition, or at least the basis for a prohibition, against the Jewish people ever returning to Egypt. In other words, Moshe was saying, take a good look at the, the yeah, you're, not, you're never coming back. So you want to see the Egyptians one last time? There are no pictures back then, right? So you want to see them? Take a good look, because this is the last time you're going to see Egypt. We're never going back. Okay. So actually, the prohibition against returning to Egypt, which is one of the 365 biblical prohibitions, is stated three times in Torah. The first time is this time that we just learned when the uh, Jews are standing at the shore of the Yamsuf. The second time is when the prohibition against a king amassing too many horses is stated. And the reason for that is because the horses come from Egypt and if he's into collecting horses, he's going to lead the nation back to Egypt. And then there's a third time towards the very, very end of the five books the, uh, the Torah details many of the curses that will befall the Jews if they do not follow the commandments. And the last of these curses says that God will bring you back to Egypt in ships through the way which I had said to you, you will never see it again. Where are these curses? Sorry? In Parshish Kisave, the 98 curses. So that's one of the curses. In other words, that it's not a good thing. It's not something they should do. Certainly not by their own volition. Okay. So, here's the question. And, and I'm sure this is not entirely unfamiliar to anybody. The, at least the basic idea that there is a prohibition against returning to Egypt. Okay. Here's the question. Throughout the ages, it's just a fact that there have been many uh, communities in Egypt. Many leaders of the Jewish people were in Egypt. Primary example being the Rambam. Yeah, Maimonides, yeah. And although there is a tradition, I'm not sure how substantiated it is, but uh, it's one of those things they say, that um, the Rambam used to sign his letters when he would write correspondences, he would sign his letters Moshe bin Maimon, he who transgresses daily three commandments by living in Egypt. Alluding to the three places in the Torah that we just mentioned where the prohibition to return to Egypt are stated. Nevertheless, it's, it's hard to believe that, that Ambam actually thought he was transgressing by living in, in Egypt. If, if he really believed it was a transgression, an actual sin, he would have left. So maybe he meant it more on a homiletical level or spiritual level, but the point is, how do we reconcile the what seems to be fairly clearly a text and a tradition with the historical fact? In other words, it seems like Torah is saying you're not allowed to go back there. And the historical fact is that many did, including many great Jewish people, go back there. Mm -hmm. So 
I mean, obviously, the, the, the reconciliation here is that there's some type of, you know, like, like any Jewish question, it's not so simple, right? There are factors, there are extenuating circumstances, there are, you know, it's, it, there, there's a gray area, it's not black and white. Okay, so we could all predict that. The question is, what is that? You know, what makes it not so black and white? You with me? Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. fine. All right. So, I'm going to give you just a little bit of background. I don't want to get too technical. But um, let's look a little bit at the nature of the prohibition. Before we try to look into the dispensation, before we try to understand why it would be permitted, let's first look at why it's prohibited. Because even regarding that, surprise, surprise, there are different perspectives on why it's prohibited. Okay, why would it be prohibited? Or under what conditions is it prohibited? Um, some say that it's only the prohibition is only against the Jews returning to Egypt from Israel, thereby reversing the path of the Exodus. But if they would go to Egypt from any other place, let's say they're already in the diaspora, then it wouldn't be then it wouldn't be a problem. And in fact, others say that even if they go from Israel, it's technically only transgressing the prohibition if they, re- they, go the, they retrace the exact steps of the 42 jaunts in the wilderness. Otherwise, it's, just, it's not prohibited. It's only if it's literally reversing the path of the Exodus. There are other views that the prohibition was based on a reason that the people of Egypt, the Mitzrim, were exceptionally immoral. If that's the case, if that, according to that perspective, if that is the reason for the prohibition, then the prohibition would no longer apply because, A, once the Egyptians are no, no longer exceptionally immoral, <laughs> I guess the, the world caught up to them, right? The world caught up, right? Um, that's that's A, or, or or B, let's say let's say Egyptians to be really racist here, and I don't mean Egyptians. I actually mean Mitzrayim, biblical Mitzrayim. Let's say biblical Mitzrayim are really really immoral people. Okay, like I said, a little bit of racism there. But even if that is true, even if let's say that's true, the biblical Mitzrayim are not the people who live in Mitzrayim, in the, in the geographical location which was once called Mitzrayim. Because Sancheirov, the king of Assyria, came and purposely mixed up all of the nations. So if the prohibition is based on staying away from those lewd Mitzrayim, that's not where they are anyway. There are different theories about where they are, but... Another view about the prohibition is that it only applies if the Jewish people, meaning most of the Jewish people, are established living in Eretz Yisrael, living in the Holy Land. But if the Jews are in Gaulus anyway, then it makes no difference where in Gaulus they are, even in Mitzrayim. Um, so then should they have a flask? No, because most Jews don't live in Israel. Most Jews don't live in Israel. Most Jews are assimilated. It's very close. Yeah, it's close. 
Again, this is, these are all different opinions. None of these are definitive. They're all v di various different views. Another explanation, I'm just going through the different explanations, okay? Another explanation is that it's only prohibited if you go there to settle. So it's not a problem to visit. It's not a problem even to uh, make an extended visit indefinitely, but if you, uh, you're not allowed to settle there. Um, and then, even more specifically, let's say they go there to visit and then they end up staying. That's not a problem either, even though they're staying, because they didn't actively go move to Mitzrayim. They were already there and then they passively just didn't leave. So it's not really an active transgression. Okay, at any rate, th these, these are all very interesting reasons why it is prohibited. But there's one important explanation for the prohibition that we did not mention yet, and it's the one that I want to focus on. And it is the Kabbalistic explanation that is given by the Arizal, by Yitzchak Loria known as the Ari. Many people don't know, by the way, that although he's associated with the city of Tzvas, he, do we know where he was originally from? He was from Egypt. Yeah. He was, interestingly, he was an Ashkenazi whose uh, family moved to Egypt. So what's the Arizal's explanation for the prohibition against returning to Egypt? I'm going to tell you a story first. You know the old Jewish joke? It's so old that you're not even going to laugh at this because it's so old. You're going to laugh now. Now, before I tell it, you can laugh. After I tell it, you can be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to hear a joke backwards? Start laughing. Get it? Okay. This guy, this Jewish guy went missing on a boat crash. Oh, no, there was a boat crash? No, it was just a joke. Don't worry. No, there was no boat. A guy, a Jewish guy went missing. His, his, his boat crashed. And they didn't find him for a year. And then finally the search party discovered him. He was on this island. And he, yeah, he was like, he was surviving. He was doing like Gilligan's Island stuff. He was building everything out of coconuts and palm trees. And he was really, he built up a little city for himself. So he was showing them around. He was showing the search party about, you know, this little, what is this little hut? He says, well, that's my home. That's where, that's where I live. Then they walk a little bit further. They said, what is this hut? He says, well, that's my shul. Really? That's your shul. Okay. And then they, very impressive. The guy built a shul. He's a Jewish guy. He built a shul. And uh, they go a little bit further. They said, what's this hut? He says, that's also a shul. And they say, but you already have a shul. Why do you also have this shul? He says, that shul? I wouldn't step foot in it. <laughs> I told you not to laugh. I wouldn't step foot in. I wouldn't go in that shul. I wouldn't step foot in there. 
That's Shalom. Okay. So this is a story about somebody who was also on an island who thought, you'll see from the story, he thought it was a deserted island and how he observed mitzvahs and Jewish life by himself. And it's about actually a fairly well-known figure in Jewish history, especially in Hasidic history, the son-in-law of the Baal Shem Tov, who was named Rabbi Yechiel, and he was known, mm-hmm. Yechiel, and he was known as Der Deitschel, which means the German, the little German, because he was a German Jew. Um, not that Jews necessarily cared so much about last names at that time, but officially his last name was Ashkenazi. Mm-hmm. And the reason was, is because he was living in Mezhebuzh, which was the town where the Baal Shem Tov held court, which is in uh, Ukraine. I believe at that time it was considered Poland. But uh, so, so Yechiel was sort of a cultural anomaly being a German Jew, or what, what we call a Yeke. You know about the Yeke who uh, he, he was going to shul and he told his wife, He's going to be home a little bit late from, uh, he's going out to Maidav. He's going to be home a little bit late for dinner. Because tonight is the night they're switching f- from Vesein Bracha to Vesein Talamoto Levracha. So it's going to be a little bit extra time. He's going to be a little bit later for dinner. Okay. So, anyways, Rabbi Yechiel was called Der Deichel. And he was the son in law of the Baal Shamtav. And it's a funny story about how he ended up in Poland. Actually, he was one of five brothers, and their father made a deal with them that uh, at one day he gave them all a certain amount of money, and he said, you leave for five years, and at the end of five years, everybody comes back and shows what they've made of themselves. So Yechiel ended up in, in, in Mezhebuzh, and he ended up as an adherent of the Baal Shem Tov, and then as the Baal Shem Tov's own son-in-law. So the end of these five years was drawing near, and it was the summertime, and Rabbi Yechiel came into his, uh, his rabbi, his father-in-law, and uh, told him that he had to make this trip back to Germany to see his father. So it was the summertime, and uh, Rabbi Yechiel basically calculated how long the trip was going to take there and back, and he figured that if he doesn't waste any time, if everything goes smoothly, he could be back in Mezhebush for Rosh Hashanah. And that was very, very important to him, that idea of being with his Rebbe on the first day of the new year. So he asked the Baal Shem Tov for a bracha that he should be back in Mezhebush for, for Rosh Hashanah. And the Baal Shem Tov didn't answer. All he said was, when you go on your trip, remember to bring with you a shoifer. So he understood from that, that if he has to bring a shoifer, he may need it. He may not necessarily be in a place where he has one, and certainly then he wouldn't be in Medjibuj on Rosh Hashanah. So he brought the shoifer, and he went on the trip. Okay, long story short is he gets back to Germany, and his father made a feast, and there's a whole story about what happens over there, kind of a weird story. Each night, 
no, there was a, the first night they had a feast. And each of the sons got up at the feast. That's right. And each one had to say a, a Dvar Torah. And each of the sons said some type of a, you know, a scholarly uh, teaching. And Yechiel was sitting and eating the whole time. And when it was his turn to speak, he said, I don't need to speak. Now, what he had in mind, I don't know why he thought this, but the Baal Shem Tov had taught him about the sparks of holiness that are in the physical world, especially in the, 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 the food that we eat. And... Um, you know, we, I think we spoke about this in another class that the Rebbe's father said that kosher, the word kosher, chof shin reish, did I tell you this before? Mm-hmm. Yeah? I did. I did tell you about the, the, the Rosh Tevis of kosher? No? Kosher, chof shin reish, is a Rosh Tevis, is an acronym for the phrase in Kapitel Kufyod Tests in uh, chapter 119 of Tehillim, Kemetzi Shalol Rav, which means like one who discovers a great treasure. The, the, the Posuk, Dovod HaMelech says, Sosti Anoichi Al Imrosecha Kemetzi Shalol Rav. I rejoiced over your word like one who discovers a treasure. What does that mean? Your word here means, and those who learned Shari Yichod V'Amunah, especially chapter 1 of Shari Yichod V'Amunah, remember the idea that Hashem creates through words, through speech, and that the life force in everything that gives it its existence is Dvar Hashem, it's holy speech, divine speech, so David Malach therefore is saying, according to the way that Rebbe's father explains it, ex- the way that Rebbe's father explains it, Sosti anechi alim rosecha, I rejoiced over your word, the divine speech, the word in every physical thing. like one who discovers a treasure. In other words, when I see the piece of food, I'm not drawn in by its packaging. I don't get distracted by the physical experience of it, but rather I'm able to zero in on the divine energy that's there that I can unleash and rechannel through the performance of a mitzvah. So I'm very happy to have discovered this hidden treasure. I'm rejoicing over the Dvar Hashem, the divine speech that's in the food, like one who unearths or discovers a hidden treasure, the hidden treasure, the spark of godliness of divine speech that's in the food. That's a basic Kabbalistic concept, and it's especially stressed in Chassidus, and that's what Rabbi Yechiel was trying to illustrate. He's sitting there, and he's eating, and he was being mevara uh, He was refining sparks. But that's not what anybody saw. They just saw a freser. So afterwards, his father said to him, you really embarrassed me. He says, what, what was embarrassing? He said, your brother said such wonderful divrei Torah, and you were just eating. So Rabbi Yechiel said, okay, give me a second chance. Make another party tomorrow night, and I'll, I'll impress you. 
So they made a party the next night. Again, it's a strange story. I'm not sure why this was impressive. Well, I, I know why it's impressive. I'm not sure why the father liked it. Each brother got up to say part two of his Dvar Torah. And Rabbi Yechiel would get up and he would pass his hand in front of the brother's face and the brother would go into a trance and he would start to confess all of his sins. <laughs> and then he would sit down in embarrassment. <laughs> and one by one, boom, boom, boom. And then Rabbi Yechiel got up and he explained this concept about the sparks of godliness that are in everything and how everything in the world has divine energy and we have to harness it, we have to elevate it through using it in the proper way. All right. I told you that before. Don't ask me why a story happened the way that it happened. This is the way that it happened. The father loved it. He said, Yechil, you made me proud. That was so cool. That was amazing what you did. Okay, so Yechil then says, great. I'm proud. I'm happy I made you proud. Can I go now? Can I leave? Can I go back to Mezhibush? So he says, yeah, sure, no problem. Go back to Mezhibush. So he runs back to Mezhibush. He's, he realizes he's making good time. He will make it back to Mezhibush for Rosh Hashanah. So he's heading back <clears throat> to, uh, to Mezhibush for Rosh Hashanah. He's making good time. And you know what happens anytime you're on a trip and you're making good time, right? The minute that you look at the GPS, you say, we're going to be 20 minutes early, right? And what happens? Okay. Recalculating, exactly. So what was the recalculating? He got kidnapped by slave drivers. They were human traffickers. He got kidnapped. And they took him far, far, far away from the, the, the road. And I don't know how far they took him, but they took him to a body of water. So from Germany to Poland, there's not major bodies of water around anywhere. Where they took him, I'm not sure, but very far off course. And they took him on a boat, and they were basically going to take him away to some place and sell him. So he's on the boat. And now forget about not making it back to Mezhibush for Rosh Hashanah. Now how is he going to escape from this, uh, this peril? And wouldn't you know it, there was a storm, and the boat capsized, and he was able to jump overboard, and everybody else was lost at sea, and he was able to safely uh, find an island, and he, he swam ashore, and he finds himself on this island, this deserted, or like I told you before, so he thought, deserted island. Okay. And he calculates, and he realizes that tonight is Rosh Hashanah. And he has his shoifer, just like the Baal Shem Tov told him, bring your shoifer. So he has his shoifer. Okay, fine. Here he is, he's on this island. What choice does he have? He's got to do the, you know, like I called it before, Gilligan's Island. He's just, he's got self-sufficient. He's got to, he's got to make do. He's got to make do with what he has. Okay, fine. So he goes to mikveh, you know, on the island. How you go to the mikveh? Yeah, you have the mikvahs all around you. <laughs> Every direction you walk, you eventually hit the mikvah. Okay. And then he goes in the water, he comes out of the water, and he davins. And then the next morning, he davins again, and he sounds the ram's horn, and he doesn't realize it, but there's a group of natives watching him, and they're very, very concerned because this stranger came to the island, 
strange person. He came to the island. He's not looking for help. He's not looking for food. He's not looking for shelter. He jumps in the water. He jumps out of the water. He screams at the sky. He cries and he toots on a ram's horn. He's crazy. So there was a whole crowd of these natives watching Rabbi Hill and discussing what should we do with this guy? You know, should we put the, bu- the butterfly net over him and haul him in? So the, uh, the king of the island happened to be coming by and uh, he sees the crowd of his subjects. He says, why, why, are, why, are you all, why are you all congregated here by the beach? And they say, His Majesty uh, should know that there's a, a stranger came to the island. He's very, very odd. We've been watching him. We think he's crazy. He jumps in the water, jumps out of the water, screams at the sky. He cries. He toots on a ram's horn. He cries some more. And we think he's... He's, we think he's crazy. So the king says, ah, the king was the most educated person on the island. So he says, ah, I, I've heard of these people. He's not crazy, he's Jewish. <laughs> I read about this. These are called Jews, and I think this is his uh, new year. I would love to meet a Jew. Go tell him to come to me. Meet me in the palace to be my, to be my guest. So they go down to Yechiel, and he realizes he's not alone. And they say, uh, the, the king wants to meet you. So he says, it's my holiday. I can't meet the king right now. So the, uh, the messenger goes back. He says, he says it's his holiday today. So the king says, so tell him to come tomorrow. So he comes down. He, the king says, come tomorrow. He says, tomorrow's also my holiday. So he goes back to the king. The king says, oh yeah, two-day yomtif. I forgot about that. Tell him whenever it's over, just come to me. But I want to meet him. I want to meet a Jew. Fine, they arrange it. Whenever your, your holiday is over, the king wants to see you. So after the 48 hours of Rosh Hashanah, Yechiel goes to the palace, he meets the king. The king says to him, listen, I never met a Jew, but I always wanted to meet a Jew. I think Jews are great. Um, and in fact, I think my kingdom, my this island kingdom, would do well with the Jewish community. And I was thinking about it, I think we would like to have 400 Jews. So could you please arrange for me, and I'll pay for your, your service, that 400 Jews should relocate here on my island. So Rabbi Yechiel says to the king, he says, um, I'm not going to be able to grant His Majesty's request for two reasons. One reason is a simple reason, which is I'm not a governor or a leader or an organizer of Jews that I can just command 400 Jewish people to move where I tell them to. So I, 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 can't, I can't do that for you. He says, but the other reason is because you should understand how it works. Yeah, the Jews are all over the world, but it's more complicated than it seems. And he started, Abichil started to explain a little bit about the idea of the sparks of godliness that are lodged in the physical world and how the Jewish people are tasked with engaging these sparks through mitzvahs and elevating them. So he says, basically, um, the Jewish people are in the diaspora. They're, they're dispersed all over the world for, the, for these sparks, and wherever the sparks are, that's where the Jewish people are. And uh, so what I'm saying to you is, it doesn't really help for you to want 400 Jews to be here, 
because that's not how it works. Jews don't go where they want to go. They think they're going where they want to go, but they go really where, where they are needed to, to engage and elevate the, the sparks. And uh, you don't have to ask for 400 Jews. If God wants 400 Jews to be in your island, if God doesn't want 400 Jews to be on your island, it's never going to happen no matter what you try. But if God does want 400 Jews to be on your island, then you don't have to convince them. You don't have to ask them. 400 Jews are going to end up on this island, even if they have to be dragged here in chains as slaves. So the king hears this and he says, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, okay, fine. I hear you. Forget my request. And I'm get, I'm, I'll get you a boat, get you back to the mainland, and we'll arrange transportation for you to get back to wherever it is that you're going. So finally, Rabbi Yechiel gets back to Mezhibush, and it's long after Rosh Hashanah at this point, and he sees his, uh, his father-in-law, his Rebbe, the Holy Baal Shem Tov, and he comes into uh, his room for Yechidus, and he sees that the Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov is very serious. So he says, uh, the Baal Shem Tov says, Yechiel, this Rosh Hashanah, I had to work very hard. And the Baal Shem Tov, Rosh Hashanah wasn't just davening for himself, obviously. Not just for his family or, or even his students. The Baal Shem Tov was davening for Klal Yisrael. So he says, I was working this Rosh Hashanah on making everything good for everybody this year. And there was this one decree that I saw hanging over the heads of the Jewish people this year. And I just couldn't, no matter what I tried, I just couldn't get it to go away. The decree was that there was this really far-flung remote location, which happened to have been embedded with an, in an incredible amount of godly sparks since the time of creation. And no Jew had ever been there. And since no Jew had ever been there, these sparks were stuck. And so it was decreed, as is the way of, of the world, that, a, that Jews had to be there. They had to go there. And it was calculated, somehow, that the only way that this would uh, work is that 400 Jews would have to be brought to that island as a community, and they would live there for many generations, and they would practice Judaism, Torah and mitzvahs, until finally those sparks would be redeemed, and then they would, eventually, after many generations, they would be able to leave. And I saw that it was going to happen this year. 400 Jews were going to be dragged in chains as slaves to this remote island. And I couldn't get the decree to go away. But something happened over the 48 hours of Rosh Hashanah. What happened is, somehow, by divine providence, one Jew ended up at that very place and was engaged with such fervor in the Aveda, the spiritual tasks of Rosh Hashanah, the davening, and the mitzvah of Shoifer, that his work there 
elevated all of the holiness in that place. And now, no Jew ever has to go back to that place. He finished it. He cleaned it all up. It's done. Nobody has to go back there. And who was that Jew? Says the Baal Shem Tov. He says, Yechiel, that was you. Okay. That's the story. And we're almost ready to hear the Arizal's explanation for why we shouldn't go back to Egypt. When the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, or more accurately, when Hashem removed them finally from Mitzrayim, they took the sparks. How do you know that? Where does it say that? Oh, I said it before? I don't know from myself. They left with Rechush Gadol. Very good. Rechush Gadol with wealth. Now that wealth is literal wealth. The gold, the silver, right? All those things that they were borrowing. Why on the eve of their liberation, after 210 years of brutality and torture, children being stuffed into walls, why were they running around gathering riches? Who needs it? Who needs it? Because Hashem said. Well, why did Hashem say? Why did Hashem make them gather up riches? It'll get me out of here. Because the whole point of going down into Egypt was in order to leave Egypt. And the whole point of leaving Egypt was to bring with all of the sparks. And as we said, those sparks are, are, are embedded in the physical world, in physical objects. So they were leaving with the wealth of Mitzrayim. And remember, before the Jews even came to Egypt, God arranged that all of world wealth, global wealth, should become, become concentrated in Egypt. If you remember, the whole story of Yosef was there was a global famine. And only Mitzrayim had the plan because they had Yosef. He was the minister of agriculture, the viceroy, and he planned it all. So during those years, before the Jews even ended up in Egypt, global wealth was concentrated in Egypt. They were by far disproportionately the wealthiest country in the world. And when the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, they left with that wealth. I think this is what we learned before. Ah, when we were talking about the, the name Elakim, I think that's when we talked about Elakim is Bigamatria Hateva, which is 86. Yeah, that's where we learned this. It says, In the beginning of creation, the godly spirit was hovering over the waters. So, the Kabbalah explains, Marachefes hovering is Mes Rapach. The first letter and the last letter, Mem and Sof, is Meis. And in between you have Rapach, Reish Peiches, the 288 sparks of the Shviras HaKelem, the shattering of the vessels. They died, so to speak. They fell from their very lofty source down to the physical world. So when the world was created, 288 sparks fell to this world. When the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, it says that an Erev Rav went up with them. That means the mixed multitude, but also it means, 
Rav Reish base 202 that they left with 202 of the 288 sparks. And all that's been left since then are the 86 sparks, which is the Gematria Hateva, our job of revealing godliness in the natural order. The point is, they left Mitzrayim with all of the wealth of Mitzrayim. And it says that when they left, Mitzrayim was like a pond without a, without a single fish. It was totally sapped, totally drained. Every spark was removed from there. Oh, I yeah. I think my kids to the Metropolitan Museum of Art around the time of like Shemus, but you were both to see the Egyptian. So the artifacts are primarily from before 1839, and there's very little culturally afterwards. Afterwards, yeah. Because there's they, a, and there's a gap. And they just fell there's off. Like a 200-year gap. Right, because they went from this incredible abundance to all of a sudden third world country you see it in the in in the years they tell you the years that these things were created and there's a there's a gap and the stuff that that's from before is more advanced than the artifacts from after the artifacts from before are like they had they had um they had everything down pat they built so much and Mm -hmm. afterwards it's primitive Wow. You, have, you have to see it to, to, yeah. Yeah, they literally lost their whole they civilization. Lost their yeah. Whole civilization. Yeah. 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 So basically, now here, here's the the death of the 288 sparks from the shattering of the vessels. So bottom line, what's the idea here? Jewish people go where there are sparks to redeem. Mitzrayim has no sparks. That was done. That was finished. We'll finish that. Close it up. It's like when mommy finishes a room of Pesach cleaning, she puts up a sign, don't go in here, we're done. Don't go back there. So Hashem said, don't go back to Mitzrayim. This is how we explain many different reasons for the prohibition of returning to Mitzrayim. The Arizal explains it, he explains it Kabbalistically. He says, Jews go where there are sparks. But if there are no sparks, Jews shouldn't go there. It's a waste of their time. It's a waste of their precious holy time. Now if you understand the Arizal's explanation for the nature of the prohibition, now we can understand the nature of the dispensation, why it would often be allowed under certain circumstances. And in fact... It's revealed, or hinted to at least, in the Rambam. The Rambam was not overtly a Kabbalist, but many of the things he wrote were in line with Kabbalah. And one of the things that the Rambam rules in Mishnah Torah, Laws of Kings, is that although it's a prohibition for the Jewish people to return to Egypt, one is allowed to go there for for business. Prakmatia. Business. Why does he allow you to go back for business? So if you're really cynical, you say, oh, for Parnusa, we could always find a hetter. <laughs> right? Right, okay. But that's, that's not what it is. Why can you go back for business? Think about it. Because Egypt may not have any wealth left, but the nature of commerce 
is that goods travel, so a merchant who buys and sells may find some merchandise that found its way to Egypt. Egypt doesn't natively have any sparks left. They were all, re re they were all removed. But some spark may have been brought to Egypt, and some Jew may need to redeem that by owning that for a period of time and making use of it. So therefore, there might be sparks that landed up back. So it's like, mommy put up the sign, we're finished, don't go into this room. And then you find out that your five-year-old was in there with a bag of pretzels. Oh, we gotta go back again. Okay, we thought we were done, we're not done. Okay. And that's why you're allowed to go back for whatever sparks ended up back there. So if there's sparks back there, so you're allowed to go. Okay. Here's the bottom line. Here's the idea. Wherever you are, wherever you are found, it is not by choice. You think you chose to be here. You think it's because you were born here or you married someone from here or you have a job here or you like the school here. None of that is true. That's what you're telling yourself. If God needed you to be somewhere else, you would be there. No matter how he had to get you there, even, God forbid, in chains as a slave, whatever he would have to do, he would get you there. Wherever we are found right now is because this is where the sparks are. And more specifically, not just in a general way, but sparks that you are able to redeem. And the more quickly we finish that up, the more quickly we all get out of here and we go to where we really belong. We go to Eretz Yisrael with Mashiach. It's, a, it's, it's not literally 86 sparks, is it? Because then it would just take 86 people, isn't it? Some Obviously, multiple people. Do you know what I'm saying? But it's not one spark per person. They're general sparks. You're saying so it's very sparkly per spark. They're aggregate. Okay, Kosher for Elohim Pesach. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. 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 Thank you.